Chapter Thirty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Chapter Thirty Four. The Yankee and the King sold as slaves. Well, what had I better do? Nothing in a hurry, sure. I must get up a diversion, anything to employ me while I could think, and while these poor fellows could have a chance to come to life again. There sat Marco, petrified in the act of trying to get the hang of his miller gun, turned to stone, just in the attitude he was in when my pile-driver fell, the toy still gripped in his unconscious fingers. So I took it from him and proposed to explain its mystery. Mystery! A simple little thing like that, and yet it was mysterious enough for that race and that age. I never saw such an awkward people with machinery. You see, they were totally unused to it. The miller gun was a little double-barreled tube of toughened glass with a neat little trick of a spring to it, which upon pressure would let a shot escape. But the shot wouldn't hurt anybody. It would only drop into your hand. In the gun were two sizes, wee mustard-seed shot, and another sort that were several times larger. They were money. The mustard-seed shot represented mill-rays, the larger ones mills. So the gun was a purse, and very handy, too. You could pay out money in the dark with it, with accuracy, and you could carry it in your mouth, or in your vest-pocket, if you had one. I made them of several sizes, one size so large it would carry the equivalent of a dollar. Using shot for money was a good thing for the government, the metal cost nothing, and the money couldn't be counterfeited, for I was the only person in the kingdom who knew how to manage a shot-tower. Paying the shot soon came to be a common phrase. Yes, and I knew it would still be passing men's lips away down in the nineteenth century, yet none would suspect how and when it originated. The king joined us about this time, mightily refreshed by his nap, and feeling good. Anything could make me nervous now. I was so uneasy, for our lives were in danger, and so it worried me to detect a complacent something in the king's eye, which seemed to indicate that he had been loading himself up for a performance of some kind or other. Confound it, why must he go and choose such a time as this? I was right. He began, straight off, in the most innocently artful and transparent and lubberly way, to lead up to the subject of agriculture. The cold sweat broke out all over me. I wanted to whisper in his ear, "'Man, we are in awful danger. Every moment is worth a principality till we get back these men's confidence. Don't waste any of this golden time.' But of course I couldn't do it. Whisper to him? It would look as if we were conspiring." So I had to sit there and look calm and pleasant while the king stood over that dynamite mine and mooned along about his damned onions and things. At first the tumult of my own thoughts, summoned by the danger signal and swarming to the rescue from every quarter of my skull, kept up such a hurrah and confusion and fifing and drumming that I couldn't take in a word. But presently, when my mob of gathering plans began to crystallize and fall into position and form a line of battle, a sort of order and quiet ensued, and I caught the boom of the king's batteries, as if out of remote distance. Were not the best way, methinks, albeit it is not to be denied that authorities differ as concerning this point, some contending that the onion is but an unwholesome berry when stricken early from the tree. 
The audience showed signs of life, and sought each other's eyes in a surprised and troubled way. While as others do yet maintain, with much show of reason, that this is not of necessity the case, instancing that plums and other like cereals do be always dug in the unripe state. The audience exhibited distinct distress, yes, and also fear. Yet are they clearly wholesome, the more especially when one doth assuage the asperities of their nature by admixture of the tranquilizing juice of the wayward cabbage. The wild light of terror began to glow in these men's eyes, and one of them muttered, These be errors, every one. God hath surely smitten the mind of this farmer. I was in miserable apprehension. I sat upon thorns and further instancing the known truth that in the case of animals the young which may be called the green fruit of the creature is the better all confessing that when a goat is ripe his fur doth heat and soar endgame his flesh the which defect taken in connection with his several rancid habits and fulsome appetites and godless attitudes of mind and bilious quality of morals they rose and went for him, with a fierce shout, The one would betray us, the other is mad. Kill them! Kill them! They flung themselves upon us. What joy flamed up in the king's eye! He might be lame in agriculture, but this kind of thing was just in his line. He had been fasting long. He was hungry for a fight. He hit the blacksmith a crack under the jaw that lifted him clear off his feet and stretched him flat on his back. St. George for prison! And he downed the wheelwright. The mason was big, but I laid him out like nothing. The three gathered themselves up and came again, went down again, came again, and kept on repeating this with native British pluck, until they were battered to jelly, reeling with exhaustion, and so blind that they couldn't tell us from each other. And yet they kept right on, hammering away with what might was left in them, hammering each other, for we stepped aside, and looked on while they rolled and struggled and gouged and pounded and bit with the strict and wordless attention to business of so many bulldogs. We looked on without apprehension, for they were fast getting past ability to go for help against us, and the arena was far enough from the public road to be safe from intrusion. Well, while they were gradually playing out, it suddenly occurred to me to wonder what had become of Marco. I looked around. He was nowhere to be seen. Oh, but this was ominous! I pulled the king's sleeve, and we glided away and rushed for the hut. No Marco there, no Phyllis there. They had gone to the road for help, sure. I told the king to give his heels wings, and I would explain later. We made good time across the open ground, and as we darted into the shelter of the wood, I glanced back and saw a mob of excited peasants swarm into view, with Marco and his wife at their head. They were making a world of noise, but that couldn't hurt anybody. The wood was dense, and as soon as we were well into its depths, we would take to a tree and let them whistle. Ah, but then came another sound—dogs. Yes, that was quite another matter. It magnified our contract. We must find running water. We tore along at a good gait, and soon left the sounds far behind and modified to a murmur. We struck a stream and darted into it. We waded swiftly down it, in the dim forest light for as much as three hundred yards, and then came across an oak with a great bough sticking out of the water. We climbed up on this bough, and began to work our way along it to the body of the tree. 
Now we began to hear those sounds more plainly, so the mob had struck our trail. For a while the sounds approached pretty fast, and then for another while they didn't. No doubt the dogs had found the place where we had entered the stream, and were now waltzing up and down the shores trying to pick up the trail again. When we were snugly lodged in the tree and curtained with foliage, the king was satisfied, but I was doubtful. I believed we could crawl along a branch and get into the next tree, and I judged it worth while to try. We tried it, and made a success of it, though the king slipped, at the junction, and came near failing to connect. We got comfortable lodgment and satisfactory concealment among the foliage, and then we had nothing to do but listen to the hunt. Presently we heard it coming, and coming on the jump, too, yes, and down both sides of the stream. Louder! Louder! Next minute it swelled swiftly up into a roar of shoutings, barkings, tramplings, and swept by like a cyclone. "'I was afraid that the overhanging branch would suggest something to them,' said I. "'But I don't mind the disappointment. Come, my liege, it were well that we make good use of our time. We've flanked them.' dark is coming on presently if we can cross the stream and get a good start and borrow a couple of horses from somebody's pasture to use for a few hours we shall be safe enough we started down and got nearly to the lowest limb when we seemed to hear the hunt returning we stopped to listen yes said i they're baffled they've given it up and they're on their way home we will climb back to our roost again and let them go by so we climbed back the king listened a moment, and said, "'They still search, I wit the sign. We did best to abide.' He was right. He knew more about hunting than I did. The noise approached steadily, but not with a rush. The king said, "'They reason that we were advantaged by no parlous start of them, and being on foot are as yet no mighty way from where we took the water.' "'Yes, sire, that is about it, I'm afraid, though I was hoping better things.' The noise drew nearer and nearer, and soon the van was drifting under us, on both sides of the water. A voice called a halt from the other bank, and said, "'And they were so minded, they could get to yon tree by this branch that overhangs, and yet not touch ground. Ye will do well to send a man up it. Marry, that we will do.' I was obliged to admire my cuteness in foreseeing this very thing and swapping trees to beat it. But, don't you know, there are some things that can beat smartness and foresight. Awkwardness and stupidity can. The best swordsman in the world doesn't need to fear the second best swordsman in the world. No, the person for him to be afraid of is some ignorant antagonist who has never had a sword in his hand before. He doesn't do the thing he ought to do, and so the expert isn't prepared for him. He does the thing he ought not to do, and often it catches the expert out and ends him on the spot. Well, how could I, with all my gifts, make any valuable preparation against a near-sighted, cross-eyed, pudding-headed clown who would aim himself at the wrong tree and hit the right one? And that is what he did. He went for the wrong tree, which was, of course, the right one by mistake, and up he started. Matters were serious now. We remained still and awaited developments. The peasant toiled his difficult way up. The king raised himself up and stood. He made a leg ready, and when the comer's head arrived in reach of it, there was a dull thud, and down went the man floundering to the ground. There was a wild outbreak of anger below, and the mob swarmed in from all around, and there we were, treed, and prisoners. Another man started up, the bridging bow was detected, and a volunteer started up the tree that furnished the bridge. 
the king ordered me to play Horatius and keep the bridge. For a while the enemy came thick and fast, but no matter, the headman of each procession always got a buffet that dislodged him as soon as he came in reach. The king's spirits rose, his joy was limitless. He said that if nothing occurred to mar the prospect, we should have a beautiful night, for on this line of tactics we could hold the tree against the whole countryside. However, the mob soon came to that conclusion themselves, wherefore they called off the assault and began to debate other plans. They had no weapons, but there were plenty of stones, and stones might answer. We had no objections. A stone might possibly penetrate to us once in a while, but it wasn't very likely. We were well protected by boughs and foliage, and were not visible from any good aiming point. If they would but waste half an hour in stone-throwing, the dark would come to our help. We were feeling very well satisfied. We could smile, almost laugh. But we didn't, which was just as well, for we should have been interrupted. Before the stones had been raging through the leaves and bouncing from the boughs fifteen minutes, we began to notice a smell. A couple of sniffs of it was enough of an explanation. It was smoke. Our game was up at last. We recognized that. When smoke invites you, you have to come. They raised their pile of dry brush and damp weeds higher and higher, and when they saw the thick cloud begin to roll up and smother the tree, they broke out in a storm of joy-clamors. I got enough breath to say, "'Proceed, my liege. After you is manners.' The king gasped. "'Follow me down, and then back thyself against one side of the trunk, and leave me the other. Then will we fight. Let each pile his dead according to his own fashion and taste.' Then he descended, barking and coughing, and I followed. I struck the ground an instant after him. We sprang to our appointed places, and began to give and take with all our might. The pow-wow and racket were prodigious. It was a tempest of riot and confusion, and thick-falling blows. Suddenly some horsemen tore into the midst of the crowd, and a voice shouted, "'Hold! Or ye are dead men!' How good it sounded! The owner of the voice bore all the marks of a gentleman picturesque and costly raiment, the aspect of command, a hard countenance with complexion and features marred by dissipation. The mob fell humbly back, like so many spaniels. The gentleman inspected us critically, then said sharply to the peasants, "'What are ye doing to these people?' "'They be madmen, worshipful sir, that have come wandering we know not whence, and—' "'Ye know not whence? Do ye pretend ye know them not?' most honored sir we speak but the truth they are strangers and unknown to any in this region and they be the most violent and bloodthirsty madmen that ever peace ye know not what ye say they are not mad who are ye and whence are ye explain we are but peaceful strangers sir i said and travelling upon our own concerns we are from a far country and unacquainted here we have proposed no harm, and yet, but for your brave interference and protection, these people would have killed us. As you have divined, sir, we are not mad, neither are we violent or bloodthirsty. The gentleman turned to his retinue, and said calmly, "'Lash me these animals to their kennels.' The mob vanished in an instant, and after them plunged the horsemen, laying about them with their whips, and pitilessly riding down such as were witless enough to keep the road, instead of taking to the bush." The shrieks and supplications presently died away in the distance, and soon the horsemen began to straggle back. Meantime the gentlemen had been questioning us more closely, but had dug no particulars out of us. 
we were lavish of recognition of the service he was doing us but we revealed nothing more than that we were friendless strangers from a far country when the escort were all returned the gentleman said to one of his servants bring the lead horses and mount these people yes my lord we were placed toward the rear among the servants we traveled pretty fast and finally drew rein some time after dark at a roadside inn some ten or twelve miles from the scene of our troubles my lord went immediately to his room after ordering his supper and we saw no more of him at dawn in the morning we breakfasted and made ready to start my lord's chief attendant sauntered forward at that moment with indolent grace and said ye have said ye should continue upon this road which is our direction likewise wherefore my lord the earl grip hath given commandment that ye retain the horses and ride and that certain of us ride with ye a twenty mile to a fair town that hight cambenet when so ye shall be out of peril we could do nothing less than express our thanks and accept the offer we jogged along six in the party at a moderate and comfortable gait and in conversation learned that my lord grip was a very great personage in his own region which lay a day's journey beyond cambenet we loitered to such a degree that it was near the middle of the forenoon when we entered the market square of the town we dismounted and left our thanks once more for my lord and then approached a crowd assembled in the centre of the square to see what might be the object of interest it was the remnant of that old peregrinating band of slaves so they had been dragging their chains about all this weary time that poor husband was gone and also many others and some few purchases had been added to the gang the king was not interested and wanted to move along but i was absorbed and full of pity i could not take my eyes away from these worn and wasted wrecks of humanity there they sat grounded upon the ground silent uncomplaining with bowed heads a pathetic sight and by hideous contrast a redundant orator was making a speech to another gathering not thirty steps away in fulsome laudation of our glorious british liberties i was boiling i had forgotten i was a plebeian i was remembering i was a man cost what it might i would mount that rostrum and click the king and i were handcuffed together our companions those servants had done it my lord grip stood looking on the king burst out in fury and said what meaneth this ill-mannered jest my lord merely said to his head miscreant coolly put up the slaves and sell them slaves the word had a new sound and how unspeakably awful the king lifted his manacles and brought them down with a deadly force but my lord was out of the way when they arrived a dozen of the rascal's servants sprang forward, and in a moment we were helpless, with our hands bound behind us. We so loudly and so earnestly proclaimed ourselves freemen that we got the interested attention of that liberty-mouthing orator and his patriotic crowd, and they gathered about us and assumed a very determined attitude. The orator said, "'If indeed ye are freemen, ye have naught to fear.' the god-given liberties of britain are about ye for your shield and shelter applause ye shall soon see bring forth your proofs what proofs proof that ye are freemen ah i remembered i came to myself i said nothing but the king stormed out thou art insane man it were better and more in reason that this thief and scoundrel here prove that we are not freemen 
You see, he knew his own laws, just as other people so often know the laws, by words, not by effects. They take a meaning, and get to be very vivid when you come to apply them to yourself. All hands shook their heads and looked disappointed. Some turned away, no longer interested. The orator said, and this time in the tones of business, not of sentiment, "'And ye do not know your country's laws. It were time ye learned them. Ye are strangers to us. Ye will not deny that. Ye be free men. We do not deny that. But also ye may be slaves. The law is clear. It doth not require the claimant to prove ye are slaves. It requireth you to prove ye are not.' I said, "'Dear sir, give us only time to send to Astolat or give us only time to send to the valley of holiness peace good man these are extraordinary requests and you may not hope to have them granted it would cost much time and would unwarrantly inconvenience your master master idiot stormed the king i have no master i myself am the m silence for god's sake i got the words out in time to stop the king we were in trouble enough already. It could not help us any to give these people the notion that we were lunatics. There is no use in stringing out the details. The Earl put us up and sold us at auction. This same infernal law had existed in our own South in my own time, more than thirteen hundred years later, and under it hundreds of free men, who could not prove that they were freemen, had been sold into lifelong slavery without the circumstance making any particular impression upon me. But the minute law and the auction block came into my personal experience. A thing which had been merely improper before became suddenly hellish. Well, that's the way we are made. Yes, we were sold at auction, like swine. In a big town and an active market we should have brought a good price but this place was utterly stagnant, and so we sold at a figure which makes me ashamed every time I think of it. The King of England brought seven dollars, and his Prime Minister nine, whereas the King was easily worth twelve dollars, and I, as easily, worth fifteen. But that is the way things always go. If you force a sale in a dull market, I don't care what the property is, you are going to make a poor business of it, and you can make up your mind to it if the earl had had wit enough to however there is no occasion for my working my sympathies up on his account let him go for the present i took his number so to speak the slave dealer bought us both and hitched us on to the long chain of his and we constituted the rear of his procession we took up our line of march and passed out of cambonet at noon and it seemed to me unaccountably strange and odd that the king of england and his chief minister marching manacled and fettered and yoked in a slave convoy could move by all manner of idle men and women and under windows where sat the sweet and the lovely and yet never attract a curious eye never provoke a single remark dear dear it only shows that there is nothing diviner about a king than there is about a tramp after all he is just a cheap and hollow artificiality when you don't know he is a king, but reveal his quality, and dear me, it takes your very breath away to look at him. I reckon we are all fools. Born so, no doubt. End of chapter 34 Chapter 35 
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 35 A Pitiful Incident. It's a world of surprises. The king brooded. This was natural. But what would he brood about, should you say? Why, about the prodigious nature of his fall, of course, from the loftiest place in the world to the lowest, from the most illustrious station in the world to the obscurest, from the grandest vocation among men to the basest. No, I take my oath that the thing that graveled him most, to start with, was not this, but the price he had fetched. He couldn't seem to get over that seven dollars. Well, it stunned me so, when I first found it out, that I couldn't believe it. It didn't seem natural. But as soon as my mental sight cleared, and I got a right focus on it, I saw I was mistaken. It was natural. For this reason. A king is a mere artificiality, and so a king's feelings, like the impulses of an automatic doll, are mere artificialities. But as a man, he is a reality, and his feelings, as a man, are real, not phantoms. It shames the average man to be valued below his own estimate of his worth, and the king certainly wasn't anything more than an average man, if he was up that high. Confound him! He wearied me with arguments to show that in anything like a fair market he would have fetched twenty-five dollars, sure, a thing which was plainly nonsense, and full of the baldest conceit. I wasn't worth it myself. But it was tender ground for me to argue on, and in fact I had to simply shirk argument and do the diplomatic instead. I had to throw conscience aside and brazenly concede that he ought to have brought twenty-five dollars, whereas I was quite well aware that in all the ages the world had never seen a king that was worth half the money, and during the next thirteen centuries wouldn't see one that was worth a fourth of it. Yes, he tired me. If he began to talk about the crops, or about the recent weather, or about the condition of politics, or about dogs, or cats, or morals, or theology, no matter what, I sighed, for I knew what was coming. He was going to get out of it a palliation of that tiresome seven-dollar sale. Wherever we halted, where there was a crowd, he would give a look which said plainly, if that thing could be tried over again now, with this kind of folk, you would see a different result. Well, when he was first sold, it secretly tickled me to see him go for seven dollars. But before he was done with his sweating and worrying, I wished he had fetched a hundred. The thing never got a chance to die, for every day, at one place or another, possible purchasers looked us over, and, as often as any other way, their comment on the king was something like this. "'Here's a two-dollar-and-a-half chump with a thirty-dollar style. Pity but style was marketable.' At last this sort of remark produced an evil result. Our owner was a practical person, and he perceived that this defect must be mended if he hoped to find a purchaser for the king. So he went to work to take the style out of his sacred majesty. I could have given the man some valuable advice, but I didn't. You mustn't volunteer advice to a slave-driver unless you want to damage the cause you are arguing for. I had found it a sufficiently difficult job to reduce the king's style to a peasant's style, even when he was a willing and anxious pupil. Now, then, to undertake to reduce the king's style to a slave's style, and by force, <laughs> go to! It was a stately contract. 
Never mind the details, it will save me trouble to let you imagine them. I will only remark that at the end of a week there was plenty of evidence that lash and club and fist had done their work well. The king's body was a sight to see, and to weep over, but his spirit? Why, it wasn't even phased. Even that dull clod of a slave-driver was able to see that there can be such a thing as a slave who will remain a man till he dies, whose bones you can break, but whose manhood you can't. This man found that from his first effort down to his latest he couldn't ever come within reach of the king, but the king was ready to plunge for him and did it. So he gave up at last, and left the king in possession of his style unimpaired. The fact is, the king was a good deal more than a king, he was a man. And when a man is a man, you can't knock it out of him. We had a rough time for a month, tramping to and fro in the earth, and suffering. And what English man was the most interested in the slavery question by that time? His grace the king. Yes, from being the most indifferent, he was become the most interested. He was become the bitterest hater of the institution I had ever heard talk. And so I ventured to ask once more a question which I had asked years before, and had gotten such a sharp answer that I had not thought it prudent to meddle in the matter further. Would he abolish slavery? His answer was as sharp as before. But it was music this time. I shouldn't ever wish to hear pleasanter, though the profanity was not good, being awkwardly put together, and with the crash word almost in the middle instead of at the end, where, of course, it ought to have been. I was ready and willing to get free now. I hadn't wanted to get free any sooner. No, I cannot quite say that. I had wanted to, but had not been willing to take desperate chances, and had always dissuaded the king from them. But now, ah, it was a new atmosphere. Liberty would be worth any cost that might be put upon it now. I set about a plan, and was straightway charmed with it. It would require time, yes, and patience, too, a great deal of both. One could invent quicker ways, and fully as sure ones, but none that would be as picturesque as this, none that could be made so dramatic. And so I was not going to give this one up. It might delay us months, but no matter. I would carry it out or break something. Now and then we had an adventure. One night we were overtaken by a snowstorm while still a mile from the village we were making for. Almost instantly we were shut up as in a fog the driving snow was so thick. You couldn't see a thing, and we were soon lost. The slave-driver lashed us desperately, for he saw ruin before him, but his lashings only made matters worse for they drove us further from the road and from likelihood of succor. So we had to stop at last and slump down in the snow where we were. The storm continued until toward midnight, then ceased. By this time two of our feebler men and three of our women were dead, and others passed moving and threatened with death. Our master was nearly beside himself. He stirred up the living and made us stand, jump, slap ourselves to restore our circulation and he helped as well as he could with his whip. Now came a diversion. We heard shrieks and yells, and soon a woman came running and crying, and seeing our group she flung herself into our midst and begged for protection. A mob of people came tearing after her, some with torches, and they said she was a witch who had caused several cows to die by a strange disease, and practiced her arts by help of a devil in the form of a black cat. 
This poor woman had been stoned until she hardly looked human, she was so battered and bloody. The mob wanted to burn her. Well, now, what do you suppose our master did? When we closed around this poor creature to shelter her, he saw his chance. He said, Burn her here, or they shouldn't have her at all. Imagine that. They were willing. They fastened her to a post. They brought wood and piled it about her. They applied the torch while she shrieked and pleaded and strained her two young daughters to her breast, and our brute, with a heart solely for business, lashed us into position about the stake and warmed us into life and commercial value by the same fire which took away the innocent life of that poor, harmless mother. That was the sort of master we had. I took his number. That snowstorm cost him nine of his flock and he was more brutal to us than ever after that for many days together he was so enraged over his loss we had adventures all along one day we ran into a procession and such a procession all the riff-raff of the kingdom seemed to be comprehended in it and all drunk at that in the van was a cart with a coffin in it and on the coffin sat a comely young girl of about eighteen suckling a baby which she squeezed to her breast in a passion of love every little while, and every little while wiped from its face the tears which her eyes rained down upon it, and always the foolish little thing smiled up at her, happy and content, kneading her breast with its dimpled fat hand, which she patted and fondled right over her breaking heart. Men and women, boys and girls, trotted along beside or after the cart, hooting and shouting profane and ribald remarks singing snatches of foul song, skipping, dancing, a very holiday of hellions, a sickening sight. We had struck a suburb of London, outside the walls, and this was a sample of one sort of London society. Our master secured a good place for us near the gallows. A priest was in attendance, and he helped the girl climb up, and said comforting words to her, and made the undersheriff provide a stool for her. Then he stood there by her on the gallows, and for a moment looked down upon the mass of upturned faces at his feet, then out over the solid pavement of heads that stretched away on every side, occupying the vacancies far and near, and then began to tell the story of the case. And there was pity in his voice. How seldom a sound that was in that ignorant and savage land! I remember every detail of what he said, except the words he said it in, and so I change it into my own words. Law is intended to mete out justice. Sometimes it fails. This cannot be helped. We can only grieve, and be resigned, and pray for the soul of him who falls unfairly by the arm of the law, and that his fellows may be few. A law sends this poor young thing to death, and it is right but another law had placed her where she must commit her crime or starve with her child, and before God that law is responsible for both her crime and her ignominious death. A little while ago this young thing, this child of eighteen years, was as happy a wife and mother as any in England, and her lips were blithe with song, which is the native speech of glad and innocent hearts. Her young husband was as happy as she for he was doing his whole duty. He worked early and late at his handicraft. His bread was honest bread, well and fairly earned. He was prospering. He was furnishing shelter and sustenance to his family. He was adding his might to the wealth of the nation. By consent of a treacherous law, 
instant destruction fell upon his holy home and swept it away that young husband was waylaid and impressed and sent to sea the wife knew nothing of it she sought him everywhere she moved the hardest hearts with the supplications of her tears the broken eloquence of her despair weeks dragged by she watching waiting hoping her mind going slowly to wreck under the burden of her misery little by little all her small possessions went for food when she could no longer pay her rent they turned her out of doors she begged while she had strength when she was starving at last and her milk failing she stole a piece of linen cloth of the value of a fourth part of a cent thinking to sell it and save her child but she was seen by the owner of the cloth she was put in jail and brought to trial the man testified to the facts a plea was made for her and her sorrowful story was told in her behalf she spoke too by permission and said she did steal the cloth but that her mind was so disordered of late by trouble that when she was overborne with hunger all acts criminal or other swam meaningless through her brain and she knew nothing rightly except that she was so hungry for a moment all were touched and there was disposition to deal mercifully with her seeing that she was so young and friendless and her case so piteous and the law that robbed her of her support to blame as being the first and only cause of her transgression but the prosecuting officer replied that whereas these things were all true and most pitiful as well still there was much small theft in these days and mistimed mercy here would be a danger to property oh my god is there no property in ruined homes and orphaned babes and broken hearts that british law holds precious and so he must require sentence when the judge put on his black cap the owner of the stolen linen rose trembling up his lip quivering his face as gray as ashes and when the awful words came he cried out oh poor child poor child i did not know it was death and fell as a tree falls when they lifted him up his reason was gone before the sun was set he had taken his own life a kindly man a man whose heart was right at bottom add his murder to this that is to be now done here and charge them both where they belong to the rulers and the bitter laws of britain the time is come my child let me pray over thee not for thee dear abused poor heart and innocent but for them that be guilty of thy ruin and death who needed more after his prayer they put the noose around the young girl's neck and they had great trouble to adjust the knot under her ear because she was devouring the baby all the time wildly kissing it and snatching it to her face and her breast and drenching it with tears and half moaning half shrieking all the while and the baby crowing and laughing and kicking its feet with delight over what it took for romp and play even the hangman couldn't stand it but turned away when all was ready the priest gently pulled and tugged and forced the child out of the mother's arms and stepped quickly out of her reach but she clasped her hands and made a wild spring toward him with a shriek but the rope and the under-sheriff held her short then she went on her knees and stretched out her hands and cried one more kiss oh my god one more one more it is the dying that begs it she got it she almost smothered the little thing and when they got it away again she cried out oh my child my darling it will die it has no home it has no father no friend no mother 
it has them all said the good priest all these will i be to it till i die you should have seen her face then gratitude lord what do you want with words to express that words are only painted fire a look is the fire itself she gave that look and carried it away to the treasury of heaven where all things that are divine belong end of chapter thirty five this is chapter thirty six this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit LibriVox.org. a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter thirty six an encounter in the dark london to a slave was a sufficiently interesting place it was merely a great big village and mainly mud and thatch the streets were muddy crooked unpaved the populace was an ever-flocking and drifting swarm of rags and splendors of nodding plumes and shining armor the king had a palace there he saw the outside of it it made him sigh yes and swear a little in a poor juvenile sixth-century way we saw knights and grandees whom we knew but they didn't know us in our rags and dirt and raw welts and bruises and wouldn't have recognized us if we had hailed them nor stopped to answer either it being unlawful to speak with slaves on a chain sandy passed within ten yards of me on a mule hunting for me i imagined but the thing which clean broke my heart was something which happened in front of our old barrack in a square while we were enduring the spectacle of a man being boiled to death in oil for counterfeiting pennies it was the sight of a newsboy and i couldn't get at him still i had one comfort here was proof that clarence was still alive and banging away i meant to be with him before long the thought was full of cheer i had one little glimpse of another thing one day which gave me a great uplift it was a wire stretching from housetop to housetop telegraph or telephone sure i did very much wish i had a little piece of it it was just what i needed in order to carry out my project of escape my idea was to get loose some night along with the king then gag and bind our master change clothes with him batter him into the aspect of a stranger hitch him to the slave-chain assume possession of the property march to camelot and-but uh, you get my idea you see what a stunning dramatic surprise i would wind up with at the palace it was all feasible if i could only get hold of a slender piece of iron which i could shape into a lock-pick i could then undo the lumbering padlocks with which our chains were fastened whenever i might choose but i never had any luck no such thing ever happened to fall in my way however my chance came at last a gentleman who had come twice before to dicker for me without result or indeed any approach to a result came again i was far from expecting ever to belong to him for the price asked for me from the time i was first enslaved was exorbitant and always provoked either anger or derision yet my master stuck stubbornly to it twenty-two dollars he wouldn't bait a cent the king was greatly admired because of his grand physique but his kingly style was against him and he wasn't saleable nobody wanted that kind of a slave i considered myself safe from parting from him because of my extravagant price 
no i was not expecting to ever belong to this gentleman whom i have spoken of but he had something which i expected would belong to me eventually if he would but visit us often enough it was a steel thing with a long pin to it with which his long cloth outside garment was fastened together in front there were three of them he had disappointed me twice because he did not come quite close enough to me to make my project entirely safe but this time i succeeded i captured the lower clasp of the three and when he missed it he thought he had lost it on the way i had a chance to be glad about a minute then straightway a chance to be sad again for when the purchase was about to fail as usual the master suddenly spoke up and said what would be worded thus in modern english tell you what i'll do i'm tired supporting these two for no good give me twenty-two dollars for this one and i'll throw the other one in the king couldn't get his breath he was in such a fury he began to choke and gag and meantime the master and the gentleman moved away discussing and ye will keep the offer open tis open till morrow at this hour then i will answer you at that time said the gentleman and disappeared the master following him i had a time of it to cool the king down but i managed it i whispered in his ear to this effect your grace will go for nothing but after another fashion and so shall i to-night we shall both be free ah how is that with this thing which i have stolen i will unlock these locks and cast off these chains to-night when he comes about nine-thirty to inspect us for the night we will seize him gag him batter him and early in the morning we will march out of this town proprietors of this caravan of slaves that was as far as i went but the king was charmed and satisfied that evening we waited patiently for our fellow-slaves to get to sleep and signify it by the usual sign for you must not take many chances on those poor fellows if you can avoid it it is best to keep your own secrets no doubt they fidgeted only about as usual but it didn't seem so to me it seemed to me that they were going to be forever getting down to their regular snoring as the time dragged on i got nervously afraid we shouldn't have enough of it left for our needs so i made several premature attempts and merely delayed things by it for i couldn't seem to touch a padlock there in the dark without starting a rattle out of it which interrupted somebody's sleep and made him turn over and wake some more of the gang but finally i did get my last iron off and was a free man once more i took a good breath of relief and reached for the king's irons too late in comes the master with a light in one hand and his heavy walking-staff in the other i snuggled close among the wallow of snorers to conceal as nearly as possible that i was naked of irons and i kept a sharp lookout and prepared to spring for my man the moment he should bend over me but he didn't approach he stopped gazed absently toward our dusky mass a minute evidently thinking about something else then set down his light moved musingly toward the door and before a body could imagine what he was going to do he was out of the door and had closed it behind him quick said the king fetch him back of course it was the thing to do and i was up and out in a moment but dear me there were no lamps in those days and it was a dark night but i glimpsed a dim figure a few steps away i darted for it threw myself upon it and then there was a state of things and lively we fought and scuffled and struggled and drew a crowd in no time they took an immense interest in the fight and encouraged us all they could and in fact couldn't have been pleasanter or more cordial if it had been their own fight then a tremendous row broke out behind us 
and as much as half of our audience left us, with a rush, to invest some sympathy in that. Lanterns began to swing in all directions. It was the watch, gathering from far and near. Presently a halbert fell across my back, as a reminder, and I knew what it meant. I was in custody. So was my adversary. We were marched off toward prison, one on each side of the watchman. Here was disaster. Here was a fine scheme gone to sudden destruction. I tried to imagine what would happen when the master should discover that it was I who had been fighting him, and what would happen if they jailed us together in the general apartment for brawlers and petty lawbreakers, as was the custom, and what might—just then my antagonist turned his face around in my direction, the freckled light from the watchman's tin lantern fell on it, and by George, it was the wrong man! End of chapter 36「This is Chapter 37. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 37. An Awful Predicament. Sleep? It was impossible. It would naturally have been impossible in that noisome cavern of a jail, with its mangy crowd of drunken, quarrelsome, and song-singing rapscallions, but the thing that made sleep all the more a thing not to be dreamed of was my racking impatience to get out of this place and find out the whole size of what might have happened yonder in the slave-quarters in consequence of that intolerable miscarriage of mine. It was a long night, but the morning got around at last. I made a full and frank explanation to the court. I said I was a slave, the property of the great Earl Grip who had arrived just after dark at the Tabard Inn in the village on the other side of the water, and had stopped there overnight by compulsion, he being taken deadly sick with a strange and sudden disorder. I had been ordered to cross to the city in all haste and bring the best physician. I was doing my best. Naturally I was running with all my might. The night was dark. I ran against this common person here, who seized me by the throat and began to pummel me although I told him my errand, and implored him for the sake of the great earl, my master's mortal peril—' The common person interrupted and said it was a lie, and was going to explain how I rushed upon him and attacked him without a word. "'Silence, sirrah!' from the court. "'Take him hence, and give him a few stripes, whereby to teach him how to treat the servant of a nobleman after a different fashion another time. Go!' Then the court begged my pardon, and hoped I would not fail to tell his lordship it was in no wise the court's fault that this high-handed thing had happened. I said I would make it all right, and so took my leave. Took it just in time, too. He was starting to ask me why I didn't fetch out these facts the moment I was arrested. I said I would if I had thought of it, which was true, but that I was so battered by that man that all my wit was knocked out of me, and so forth and so on, and, and got myself away, still mumbling. I didn't wait for breakfast. No grass grew under my feet. I was soon at the slave-quarters. Empty. Everybody gone. That is, everybody except one body, the slave-masters. It lay there all battered to pulp, and all about were the evidences of a terrific fight. There was a rude board coffin on a cart at the door, and workmen, assisted by the police, were thinning a road through the gaping crowd in order that they might bring it in. I picked out a man humble enough in life to condescend to talk with one so shabby as I, and got his account of the matter. 
there were sixteen slaves here they rose against their master in the night and thou seest how it ended yes and how did it begin there is no witness but the slaves they said the slave that was most valuable got free of his bonds and escaped in some strange way by magic arts twas thought by reason that he had no key and the locks were neither broke nor in any wise injured when the master discovered his loss he was mad with the despair and threw himself upon his people with his heavy stick who resisted and brake his back and in other and diverse ways did give him hurts that brought him swiftly to his end this is dreadful it will go hard with the slaves no doubt upon the trial marry the trial is over over would they be a, a week think you and the matter so simple they were not the half a quarter of an hour at it why i don't see how they could determine which were the guilty ones in so short a time which ones indeed they considered not particulars like to that they condemned them in a body which ye not the law which men say the romans left behind them here when they went that if one slave killeth his master all the slaves of that man must die for it true i had forgotten and when will these die be like within a four-and-twenty hours albeit some say they will wait a pair of days more if peradventure they may find the missing one meantime the missing one it made me feel uncomfortable is it likely they will find him before the day is spent yes they seek him everywhere they stand at the gates of the town with certain of the slaves who will discover him to them if he cometh and none can pass out but he will be first examined might one see the place where the rest are confined the outside of it yes the inside of it but he will not want to see that i took the address of that prison for future reference and then sauntered off at the first second-hand clothing shop i came to up a back street i got a rough rig suitable for a common seaman who might be going on a cold voyage and bound up my face with a liberal bandage saying i had a toothache this concealed my worst bruises it was a transformation i no longer resembled my former self then i struck out for that wire found it and followed it to its den it was a little room over a butcher's shop which meant that business wasn't very brisk in the telegraphic line the young chap in charge was drowsing at his table i locked the door and put the vast key in my bosom this alarmed the young fellow and he was going to make a noise but i said save your wind if you open your mouth you are dead sure tackle your instrument lively now call camelot this doth amaze me how should such as you know aught of such matters as call camelot i am a desperate man call camelot or get away from the instrument and i will do it myself what you yes certainly stop gambling call the palace he made the call now then call clarence clarence who never mind clarence who say you want clarence you'll get an answer he did so we waited five nerve-straining minutes ten minutes how long it did seem and then came a click that was as familiar to me as a human voice for clarence had been my own pupil now my lad vacate they would have known my touch maybe and so your call was surest but i'm all right now he vacated the place and cocked his ear to listen but it didn't win i used a cipher i didn't waste any time in sociabilities with clarence but squared away for business straight off thus the king is here and in danger we were captured and brought here as slaves we should not be able to prove our identity 
and the fact is i am not in a position to try send a telegram for the palace here which will carry conviction with it his answer came straight away they don't know anything about the telegraph they haven't had any experience yet the line to london is so new better not venture that they might hang you think up something else might hang us little he knew how closely he was crowding the facts i couldn't think up anything for the moment then an idea struck me and i started it along send five hundred picked knights with lancelot in the lead and send them on the jump let them enter by the southwest gate and look out for the man with a white cloth around his right arm the answer was prompt they shall start in half an hour all right clarence now tell this lad here that i'm a friend of yours and a deadhead and that he must be discreet and say nothing about this visit of mine the instrument began to talk to the youth and i hurried away i fell to ciphering in half an hour it would be nine o'clock knights and horses in heavy armor couldn't travel very fast these would make the best time they could and now that the ground was in good condition and no snow or mud they would probably make a seven-mile gait they would have to change horses a couple of times they would arrive about six or a little after it would still be plenty light enough they would see the white cloth which i should tie around my right arm and i would take command we would surround that prison and have the king out in no time it would be showy and picturesque enough all things considered though i would have preferred noonday on account of the more theatrical aspect the thing would have now then in order to increase the strings to my bow I thought I would look up some of those people whom I had formerly recognized, and make myself known. That would help us out of our escape, without the knights. But I must proceed cautiously, for it was a risky business. I must get into sumptuous raiment, and it wouldn't do to run and jump into it. No, I must work up to it by degrees, buying suit after suit of clothes, in shops wide apart, and getting a little finer article with each change, until I should finally reach silk and velvet, and be ready for my project. So I started. But the scheme fell through like scat. The first corner I turned, I came plump upon one of our slaves, snooping around with a watchman. I coughed at the moment, and he gave me a sudden look that bit right into my marrow. I judge he thought he had heard that cough before. I turned immediately into a shop and worked along down the counter, pricing things and watching out of the corner of my eye. Those people had stopped and were talking together and looking in at the door. I made up my mind to get out the back way, if there was a back way, and I asked the shopwoman if I could step out there and look for the escaped slave who was believed to be in hiding back there somewhere, and said I was an officer in disguise, and my pard was yonder at the door with one of the murderers in charge and would she be good enough to step there and tell him he needn't wait but had better go at once to the further end of the back alley and be ready to head him off when i rousted him out she was blazing with eagerness to see one of those already celebrated murderers and she started on the errand at once i slipped out the back way locked the door behind me put the key in my pocket and started off chuckling to myself and comfortable well i had gone and spoiled it again made another mistake a double one in fact there were plenty of ways to get rid of that officer by some simple and plausible device, but no, I must pick out a picturesque one. It is the crying defect of my character. And then I had ordered my procedure upon what the officer, being human, would naturally do. Whereas, 
when you are least expecting it a man will now and then go and do the very thing which it's not natural for him to do the natural thing for the officer to do in this case was to follow straight on my heels he would find a stout oaken door securely locked between him and me before he could break it down i should be far away and engaged in slipping into a succession of baffling disguises which would soon get me into a sort of raiment which was a surer protection from meddling law-dogs in britain than any amount of mere innocence and purity of character but instead of doing the natural thing the officer took me at my word and followed my instructions and so as i came trotting out of that cul-de-sac full of satisfaction with my own cleverness he turned the corner and i walked right into his handcuffs if i had known it was a cul-de-sac however there isn't any excusing a blunder like that let it go charge it up to profit and loss of course i was indignant and swore i had just come ashore from a long voyage and all that sort of thing just to see you know if it would deceive that slave but it didn't he knew me then i reproached him for betraying me he was more surprised than hurt he stretched his eyes wide and said what wouldst have me let thee of all men escape and not hang with us when thou'rt the very cause of our hanging go to go to was their way of saying i should smile or i like that queer talkers those people well there was a sort of bastard justice in his view of the case and so i dropped the matter when you can't cure a disaster by argument what is the use to argue it isn't my way so i only said you're not going to be hanged none of us are both men laughed and the slave said ye have not ranked as a fool before you might better keep your reputation seeing the strain would not be for long it will stand it i reckon before to-morrow we shall be out of prison and free to go where we will besides the witty officer lifted at his left ear with his thumb made a rasping noise in his throat and said out of prison yes ye say true and free likewise to go where ye will so ye wander not out of his grace the devil's sultry realm i kept my temper and said indifferently now i suppose you really think we are going to hang within a day or two i thought it not many minutes ago for so the thing was decided and proclaimed ah then you've changed your mind is that it even that i only thought then i know now i felt sarcastical so i said oh sapient servant of the law condescend to tell us then what you know that ye will all be hanged to-day at mid-afternoon oh that shot hit home uh, lean upon me the fact is i did need to lean upon somebody my knights couldn't arrive in time they would be as much as three hours too late nothing in the world could save the king of england nor me which was more important more important not merely to me but to the nation the only nation on earth standing ready to blossom into civilization i was sick i said no more there wasn't anything to say i knew what the man meant that if the missing slave was found the postponement would be revoked the execution take place to-day well the missing slave was found End of chapter 37This is chapter 38. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain. Chapter 38. Sir Lancelot and Knights to the Rescue. 
nearing four in the afternoon the scene was just outside the walls of london a cool comfortable superb day with a brilliant sun the kind of day to make one want to live not die the multitude was prodigious and far-reaching and yet we fifteen poor devils hadn't a friend in it there was something painful in that thought look at it how you might there we sat on our tall scaffold the butt of the hate and mockery of all those enemies we were being made a holiday spectacle they had built a sort of grandstand for the nobility and gentry and these were there in full force with their ladies we recognized a good many of them the crowd got a brief and unexpected dash of diversion out of the king the moment we were freed of our bonds he sprang up in his fantastic rags with face bruised out of all recognition and proclaimed himself arthur king of britain and denounced the awful penalties of treason upon every soul there present if hair of his sacred head were touched it startled and surprised him to hear them break into a vast roar of laughter it wounded his dignity and he locked himself up in silence then although the crowd begged him to go on and tried to provoke him to it by catcalls jeers and shouts of let him speak the king the king his humble subjects hunger and thirst for words of wisdom out of the mouth of their master his serene and sacred raggedness but it went for nothing he put on all his majesty and sat under this reign of contempt and insult unmoved he certainly was great in his way absently i had taken off my white bandage and wound it about my right arm when the crowd noticed this they began upon me they said doubtless this sailor-man is his minister observe his costly badge of office i let them go on until they got tired and then i said yes i am his minister the boss and to-morrow you will hear that from camelot which i got no further they drowned me out with joyous derision but presently there was silence for the sheriffs of london in their official robes with their subordinates began to make a stir which indicated that business was about to begin in the hush which followed our crime was recited the death warrant read then everybody uncovered while a priest uttered a prayer then a slave was blindfolded the hangman unslung his rope there lay the smooth road below us we upon one side of it the banked multitude wailing its other side a good clear road and kept free by the police how good it would be to see my five hundred horsemen come tearing down it but no it was out of the possibilities i followed its receding thread out into the distance not a horseman on it or sign of one there was a jerk and the slave hung dangling dangling and hideously squirming for his limbs were not tied a second rope was unslung in a moment another slave was dangling in a minute a third slave was struggling in the air it was dreadful i turned away my head a moment and when i turned back i missed the king they were blindfolding him i was paralyzed i couldn't move i was choking my tongue was petrified they finished blindfolding him they led him under the rope i couldn't shake off that clinging impotence but when i saw them put the noose around his neck then everything let go in me and i made a spring to the rescue and as i made it i shot one more glance abroad by george here they came a tilting five hundred mailed and belted knights on bicycles the grandest sight that ever was seen 
lord how the plume streamed how the sun flamed and flashed from the endless procession of webby wheels i waved my right arm as lancelot swept in he recognized my rag i tore away noose and bandage and shouted on your knees every rascal of you and salute the king who fails shall sup in hell to-night i always use that high style when i'm climaxing in effect well it was noble to see lancelot and the boys swarm up onto that scaffold and heave the sheriffs and such overboard and it was fine to see that astonished multitude go down on their knees and beg their lives of the king they had just been deriding and insulting and as he stood apart there receiving this homage in rags i thought to myself well really there is something peculiarly grand about the gait and bearing of a king after all i was immensely satisfied take the whole situation all round it was one of the gaudiest effects i ever instigated and presently up comes clarence his own self and winks and says very modernly good deal of a surprise wasn't it i knew you'd like it i've had the boys practicing this long time privately and just hungry for a chance to show off end of chapter thirty eight this is chapter thirty nine this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox dot org a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court by mark twain chapter thirty nine the yankees fight with the knights home again at camelot a morning or two later i found the paper damp from the press by my plate at the breakfast-table i turned to the advertising columns knowing i should find something of personal interest to me there it was this de par le roi know that the great lord and illustrious knight sir sagramor le desirous having condescended to meet the king's minister hank morgan the which is surnamed the boss for satisfaction of offence anciently given these will engage in the lists by camelot about the fourth hour of the morning of the sixteenth day of this next succeeding month the battle will be one outrance sith the said offence was of a deadly sort admitting of no composition clarence's editorial reference to this affair was to this effect it will be observed by a glance at our advertising columns that the community is to be favored with a treat of unusual interest in the tournament line the names of the artists are warrant of good entertainment the box-office will be open at noon of the thirteenth admission three cents reserved seats five proceeds to go to the hospital fund the royal pair and all the court will be present with these exceptions and the press and the clergy the free list is strictly suspended parties are hereby warned against buying tickets of speculators they will not be good at the door everybody knows and likes the boss everybody knows and likes sir sag come let us give the lads a good send-off remember the proceeds go to a great and free charity and one whose broad benevolence stretches out its helping hand warm with the blood of a loving heart to all that suffer regardless of race creed condition or color the only charity yet established in the earth which has no politico-religious stopcock on its compassion but says here flows the stream let all come and drink 
turn out all hands fetch along your dough-nuts and your gum-drops and have a good time pie for sale on the grounds and rocks to crack it with and circus lemonade three drops of lime juice to a barrel of water n b this is the first tournament under the new law which allow each combatant to use any weapon he may prefer you may want to make a note of that up to the day set there was no talk in all britain of anything but this combat all other topics sank into insignificance and passed out of men's thoughts and interest it was not because a tournament was a great matter it was not because sir sagramore had found the holy grail for he had not but had failed it was not because the second official personage in the kingdom was one of the duelists no all these features were commonplace yet there was abundant reason for the extraordinary interest which this coming fight was creating it was born of the fact that all the nation knew that this was not to be a duel between mere men so to speak but a duel between two mighty magicians a duel not of muscle but of mind not of human skill but of superhuman art and craft a final struggle for supremacy between the two master enchanters of the age it was realized that the most prodigious achievements of the most renowned knights could not be worthy of comparison with a spectacle like this they could be but child's play contrasted with this mysterious and awful battle of the gods yes all the world knew it was going to be in reality a duel between merlin and me a measuring of his magic powers against mine it was known that merlin had been busy whole days and nights together imbuing sir sagramore's arms and armor with supernal powers of offense and defense and that he had procured for him from the spirits of the air a fleecy veil which would render the wearer invisible to his antagonist while still visible to other men against sir sagramore so weaponed and protected a thousand knights could accomplish nothing against him no known enchantments could prevail these facts were sure regarding them there was no doubt no reason for doubt there was but one question might there be still other enchantments unknown to merlin which could render sir sagramore's veil transparent to me and make his enchanted mail vulnerable to my weapons this was the one thing to be decided in the lists until then the world must remain in suspense so the world thought there was a vast matter at stake here and the world was right but it was not the one they had in their minds no a far vaster one was upon the cast of this die the life of knight-errantry i was a champion it was true but not the champion of the frivolous black arts i was the champion of hard unsentimental common sense and reason i was entering the lists to either destroy knight-errantry or be its victim vast as the showgrounds were there were no vacant spaces in them outside of the lists at ten o'clock on the morning of the sixteenth the mammoth grandstand was clothed in flags streamers and rich tapestries and packed with several acres of small fry tributary kings their suites and the british aristocracy with our own royal gang in the chief place and each and every individual a flashing prism of gaudy silks and velvets well i never saw anything to begin with it but a fight between an upper mississippi sunset and the aurora borealis the huge camp of beflagged and gay-colored tents at one end of the lists with a stiff-standing sentinel at every door and a shining shield 
hanging by him for challenge, was another fine sight. You see, every knight was there who had any ambition or any caste feeling, for my feeling toward their order was not much of a secret, and so here was their chance. If I won my fight with Sir Sagramore, others would have the right to call me out, as long as I might be willing to respond. Down at our end there were but two tents, one for me, and another for my servants. At the appointed hour the king made a sign, and the heralds, in their tabards, appeared and made proclamation, naming the combatants and stating the cause of quarrel. There was a pause, then a ringing bugle-blast, which was the signal for us to come forth. All the multitude caught their breath, and an eager curiosity flashed into every face. Out from his tent rode great Sir Sagramore, an imposing tower of iron, stately and rigid, his huge spear standing upright in its socket, and grasped in his strong hand, his grand horse's face and breast cased in steel, his body clothed in rich trappings that almost dragged the ground. Oh, a most noble picture! A great shout went up of welcome and admiration. And then out I came, but I didn't get any shout. There was a wondering and eloquent silence for a moment, then a great wave of laughter began to sweep along that human sea, but a warning bugle-blast cut its career short. I was in the simplest and comfortablest of gymnast costumes, flesh-colored tights from neck to heel, with blue silk puffings about my loins, and bare-headed. My horse was not above medium size, but he was alert, slender-limbed, muscled with watch-springs, and just a greyhound to go. He was a beauty, glossy as silk, and naked as he was when he was born, except for bridle and ranger-saddle. The iron tower and the gorgeous bed-quilt came cumbrously, but gracefully, pirouetting down the lists, and we tripped lightly up to meet them. We halted, the tower saluted, I responded, then we wheeled and rode side by side to the grandstand and faced our king and queen, to whom we made obeisance. The queen exclaimed, "'Alack, Sir Boss!' wilt fight naked, and without lance or sword, or—but the king checked her and made her understand, with a polite phrase or two, that this was none of her business. The bugles rang again, and we separated and rode to the ends of the lists, and took position. Now old Merlin stepped into view, and cast a dainty web of gossamer threads over Sir Sagramore, which turned him into Hamlet's ghost. The king made a sign, the bugles blew, Sir Sagramore laid his great lance in rest, and the next moment here he came thundering down the course with his veil flying out behind, and I went whistling through the air like an arrow to meet him, cocking my ear the while, as if noting the invisible knight's position and progress by hearing, not sight. A chorus of encouraging shouts burst out for him, and one brave voice flung out a heartening word for me, said, "'Go it, Slim Jim!' It was an even bet that Clarence had procured that favor for me, and furnished the language, too. When that formidable lance-point was within a yard and a half of my breast, I twitched my horse aside without an effort, and the big knight swept by, scoring a blank. I got plenty of applause that time. We turned, braced up, and down we came again. Another blank for the knight, a roar of applause for me. This same thing was repeated once more, and it fetched such a whirlwind of applause that Sir Sagramore lost his temper, and at once changed his tactics and set himself the task of chasing me down. Why, he hadn't any show in the world at that. It was a game of tag, with all the advantage on my side. I whirled out of his path with ease whenever I chose, and once I slapped him on the back as I went to the rear. 
Finally, I took the chase into my own hands, and after that, turn or twist or do what he would, he was never able to get behind me again. He found himself always in front at the end of his maneuver. So he gave up that business and retired to his end of the lists. His temper was clear gone now, and he forgot himself and flung an insult at me which disposed of mine. I slipped my lasso from the horn of my saddle and grasped the coil in my right hand. This time you should have seen him come. It was a business trip, sure. By his gait there was blood in his eye. I was sitting my horse at ease and swinging the great loop of my lasso in wide circles about my head. The moment he was under way I started for him. When the space between us had narrowed to forty feet, I sent the snaky spirals of the rope a-cleaving through the air, then darted aside and faced about, and brought my trained animal to a halt with all his feet braced under him for a surge. The next moment the rope sprang taut and yanked Sir Sagramore out of the saddle. Great Scott, but there was a sensation! Unquestionably, the popular thing in this world is novelty. These people had never seen anything of that cowboy business before, and it carried them clear off their feet with delight. From all around and everywhere the shout went up, Encore! Encore! I wondered where they got the word, but there was no time to cipher on philological matters, because the whole knight-errantry hive was just humming now, and my prospect for trade couldn't have been better. The moment my lasso was released, and Sir Sagramore had been assisted to his tent, I hauled in the slack, took my station, and began to swing my loop around my head again. I was sure to have use for it as soon as they could elect a successor for Sir Sagramore, and that couldn't take long, where there were so many hungry candidates. Indeed, they elected one straight off, Sir Hervis de Revel. Bzzz! Here he came, like a house afire. I dodged. He passed like a flash, with my horsehair coils settling around his neck. A second or so later, fust! The saddle was empty. I got another encore, and another, and another, and still another. When I had snaked five men out, things began to look serious to the ironclads, and they stopped and consulted together. As a result, they decided that it was time to waive etiquette and send their greatest and best against me. To the astonishment of that little world, I lassoed Sir Lamarack de Gallis, and after him Sir Galahad. So you see there was simply nothing to be done now but play their right bower, bring out the superbest of the superb, the mightiest of the mighty, the great Sir Lancelot himself. A proud moment for me? I should think so. Yonder was Arthur, King of Britain. Yonder was Guinevere, yes, and whole tribes of little provincial kings and kinglets, and in the tented camp yonder renowned knights from many lands, and likewise the selectest body known to chivalry, the Knights of the Table Round, the most illustrious in Christendom. And biggest fact of all, the very sun of their shining system was yonder couching his lance, the focal point of forty thousand adoring eyes and all by myself here was I laying for him. Across my mind flitted the dear image of a certain hello-girl of West Hartford, and I wish she could see me now. In that moment down came the Invincible, with the rush of a whirlwind. The courtly world rose to its feet and bent forward. The fateful coils went circling through the air, and before you could wink I was towing Sir Lancelot across the field on his back and kissing my hand to the storm of waving kerchiefs and the thunder-crash of applause that greeted me. Said I to myself, as I coiled my lariat and hung it on my saddle-horn and sat there drunk with glory, 
the victory is perfect no other will venture against me knight errantry is dead now imagine my astonishment and everybody else's too to hear the peculiar bugle call which announces that another competitor is about to enter the lists there was a mystery here i couldn't account for this thing next i noticed merlin gliding away from me and then i noticed that my lasso was gone the old sleight-of-hand expert had stolen it sure and slipped it under his robe the bugle blew again i looked and down came sagramore riding again with his dust brushed off and his veil nicely rearranged i trotted up to meet him and pretended to find him by the sound of his horse's hoofs he said thou'rt quick of ear but it will not save thee from this and he touched the hilt of his great sword and ye are not able to see it because of the influence of the veil know that it is no cumbrous lance but a sword and i ween ye will not be able to avoid it his visor was up and there was death in his smile i should never be able to dodge his sword that was plain somebody was going to die this time if he got the drop on me i could name the corpse we rode forward together and saluted the royalties this time the king was disturbed he said where is thy strange weapon it is stolen sire hast another at hand no sire i brought only the one then merlin mixed in he brought but the one because there was but the one to bring there exists none other but that one it belongeth to the king of the demons of the sea this man is a pretender and ignorant else he had known that that weapon can be used in but eight bouts only and then it vanisheth away to its home under the sea then he is weaponless said the king sir sagramore ye will grant him leave to borrow and i will lend said sir launcelot limping up he is as brave a knight of his hands as any that be on live and he shall have mine he put his hand on his sword to draw it but sir sagramore said stay it may not be he shall fight with his own weapons it was his privilege to choose them and bring them if he has erred on his head be it knight said the king thou art overwrought with passion it disorders thy mind wouldst kill a naked man an he do it he shall answer to me said sir launcelot i will answer it to any he that desireth retorted sir sagramore hotly merlin broke in rubbing his hands and smiling his low down a smile of malicious gratification tis well said right well said and tis enough of parleying let my lord the king deliver the battle signal the king had to yield the bugle made proclamation and we turned apart and rode to our stations there we stood a hundred yards apart facing each other rigid and motionless like horsed statues and so we remained in a soundless hush as much as a full minute everybody gazing nobody stirring it seemed as if the king could not take heart to give the signal but at last he lifted his hand the clear note of the bugle followed sir sagramore's long blade described a flashing curve in the air and it was superb to see him come i sat still on he came i did not move people got so excited that they shouted to me fly fly save thyself this is murther i never budged so much as an inch till that thundering apparition had got within fifteen paces of me then i snatched a dragoon revolver out of my holster there was a flash and a roar and the revolver was back in the holster before anybody could tell what had happened here was a riderless horse plunging by, and yonder lay Sir Sagramore, stone dead. 
the people that ran to him were stricken dumb to find that the life was actually gone out of the man and no reason for it visible no hurt upon his body nothing like a wound there was a hole through the breast of his chain-mail but they attached no importance to a little thing like that and as a bullet wound there produces but little blood none came in sight because of the clothing and swaddlings under the armor the body was dragged over to let the king and the swells look down upon it they were stupefied with astonishment naturally i was requested to come and explain the miracle but i remained in my tracks like a statue and said if it is a command i will come but my lord the king knows that i am where the laws of combat require me to remain while any desire to come against me i waited nobody challenged then i said if there are any who doubt that this field is well and fairly won i do not wait for them to challenge me i challenge them it is a gallant offer said the king and well beseems you whom will you name first i name none i challenge all here i stand and dare the chivalry of england to come against me not by individuals but in mass what shouted a score of knights you have heard the challenge take it or i proclaim you recreant knights and vanquished every one it was a bluff you know at such a time it is sound judgment to put on a bold face and play your hand for a hundred times what it is worth forty-nine times out of fifty nobody dares to call and you rake in the chips but just this once well things looked squally in just no time five hundred knights were scrambling into their saddles and before you could wink a widely scattering drove were under way and clattering down upon me i snatched both revolvers from the holsters and began to measure distances and calculate chances bang one saddle empty bang another one bang bang and i bagged two well it was nip and tuck with us and i knew it if i spent the eleventh shot without convincing these people the twelfth man would kill me sure and so i never did feel so happy as i did when my ninth downed its man and i detected the wavering in the crowd which was premonitory of panic an instant lost now could knock out my last chance but i didn't lose it i raised both revolvers and pointed them the halted host stood their ground just about one good square moment then broke and fled the day was mine knight-errantry was a doomed institution the march of civilization was begun how did i feel ah, you never could imagine it and brer merlin his stock was flat again somehow every time the magic of falderall tried conclusions with the magic of science the magic of falderall got left end of chapter thirty nine What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.